Greetings and welcome to Visibility with your host, Dr. Maria Galbraith. You may call us to share your thoughts, pose a question, or to give a general comment by dialing. Here we go, 323-642-1562. And now, Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Visibility. I'm your host, Dr. Culbert, and today is February 21st, 2018, and we're excited to be um, into episode three of our Black History Month celebration um, for this series, We Are Sisters Keepers, Black Girls and Women Empowering Each Other in the Millennium. And I hope everyone's having a really great week. Mine has been busy as usual, but nonetheless, it's been productive. So what I wanted to do, gang, is to first talk about, um, give you a description of the show that we're going to have tonight. The title is Black is Beautiful, Defining Yourself for Yourself Authentically and Unapologetically. And let me give you, let me read the description for you first, and then I'll go on and introduce our guests. So the description is as follows. Black is Beautiful focuses on black women being their authentic selves unapologetically. The manner in which we choose to express our blackness individually is a personal choice and one that should not be open to ridicule, criticism, shaming, or gossip. Topics that we're going to discuss tonight include one size, not, one size does not fit all, the authentic you, leave my hair alone, Identity, career choices, lifestyles, um, black pride, interests, and additional topics are going to include learning to authentically define yourself for yourself in your pursuit of happiness and embracing the uniqueness and diversity of black women. We're also going to discuss issues affecting our uh, black girls with regard to black being beautiful and focusing on their self-esteem, self-love, and pride to help them along their journey. My guest tonight, I have three um, outstanding doctors who will be our guests, and I'm going to go through and read their bios in alphabetical order. Our first guest is Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes. Dr. Dr. Barnes has expertise and scholarly work on African-American personal and cultural assets, an example, racial identity, beliefs, etc., and achievement outcomes. Her two lines of her research agenda include Strengths-Based Assets of Black Adolescents Project, and that project explores black youth. Now it draws on their personal and cultural assets and resources to thrive despite challenges to the identities from structural racism. The second um, part of the research agenda is celebrating the Strengths of Black Girls Project, which focuses on advancing equity for women and girls of color by creating culturally responsive program, programming that pro- promotes resiliency. Dr. Butler Barnes is one of the directors of the Brown School's Collaboration on Race, Inequalities, and Social Mobility in America, the Ackerman Chrisma, and a faculty fellow with the Institute for School Partnership and co-chair of the Master's in I believe, Social Works and Education Program at Washington University in St. Louis. Our second guest is Dr. Christina Grange. Dr. Grange is a clinical psychologist who specializes in assessment 
and therapeutic interventions to promote child development, adolescent adjustment, and family well-being. She has worked with children and families in various capacities for the past 15 years as an educator, home-based therapy provider, and outpatient clinician. Her approach to service delivery is grounded in understanding that all individuals and families have strengths and struggles. The goal is to promote strengths while empowering people to recognize, understand, and adaptively manage life's challenges. Dr. Granger's work towards this goal with sensitivity to the context in which people live and how these factors affect um, their daily lives. She received, Dr. Granger received a PhD from Virginia Commonwealth University after completing her pre-doctoral clinical training in the Department of Street at the University of Illinois in Chicago. She has a BA in education and an MS in community psychology from Florida Agricultural and University. In addition to her work in clinical practice, Dr. Grange enjoys serving as an assistant professor of psychology at Clayton State University. Our next guest is Dr. Jeanette Celeste Wally-Jean. Dr. Wally-Jean is an associate professor of psychology and graduate director for the Masters in Psychology program at Clayton State University. She's a native of Mississippi who received her undergraduate degree from Spelman College and earned her master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology from the University of Southern Mississippi. She has clinical experience working with women, men, and adolescents who have used and experienced violence in their relationships. Dr. Wally Jean is emerging as an expert on motivations and justifications for African-American college women's use of violence in their relationships. Additionally, her research investigates African-Americans, particularly African-American women's experiences of anger. Welcome, ladies, and how are you tonight? Excellent. Great. Great. First, I want to thank you all so much for being guests. And to our listeners, if you have any questions, comments, or you'd like to share, feel free to dial into our listener line, which is area code 323-642-1562. And since I'm flying solo, be patient with me on the listener lines. I will get to you. Okay, so... Before we begin tonight, everyone, as I explained to you, um, I went over the topics which we'll be discussing. It'll be engaging conversation. Um, I ask that you listen in um, with an open mind. So as we're going to discuss issues that are really pressing that affect our black girls and our black women. The goal here is to focus in on learning to, as a black woman or a young black uh, girl, to able to define yourself for yourself authentically and unapologetically as you continue on your journey. So having said that, let's begin with focusing in on this Black is Beautiful. So in the 1960s, Black is Beautiful turned into a movement, and black, black people began to embrace the color of their skin, their culture, that we saw racial pride, um, with hair, fashion, identity. I mean, guys, uh, we were wearing tashikis, we had the afros, and we had that racial unity, which was at an all-time high. So Black is Beautiful made a significant difference for black people as society witnessed the rising 
positive racial identity, self-love, self-esteem, self-identity, self-pride, and self-respect, black Americans. Our voices were heard, and there was a focus on being authentic and unapologetically black. So here's my question to start off with, and, and I will start this by directing it to you, Dr. Um, Butler Barnes. In the millennium, we have witnessed the growth of what I call the Black Hair is Beautiful movement, um, where we see everyone's going into natural hair, and um, we're seeing natural hair care products come out for, for our, our hair, um, salons that are opening up, or either other salons that are starting to gear themselves toward treating natural hair. So here's my question. As the black girls and women embrace their natural hair, is this the beginning of a new movement, or should I say the rebirth of the Black is Beautiful movement? And I say that in quotes in the millennium. And um, I ask you and the listeners and, and Dr. Grange and Dr. Wally Jean, I'll pose the same question to you. Um, consider, if you will, when you answer the push for the voices, the visibility, and focus on being authentic and un- unapologetic black women. So, Dr. Butler Barnes, what are your thoughts? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Say it again, please. Can you as, repeat as the question? Girl, sure. As black girls and women embrace their natural hair, is this the beginning of a new movement, or would you say it's the rebirth of the Black is Beautiful movement? I think it's the rebirth. Thank you for asking that. I think it's the rebirth of the Black is Beautiful movement. I think that some of the things that we're going through now in society sort of is having people reevaluate their stance, and particularly for black women, there's been this focus on, um, you know, black boys for some time, and I think it's just now time for women and girls of color to gain their voices. Um, I think blog spots like this absolutely help. And then with the additional research and in terms of shining light on the racism that has occurred, and I think a lot of that has to do with social media. And I think we're seeing the things that are around, um, that are happening nationally, and I just think it's a rebirth of a movement. I do. Yeah, I I do too. Dr. Green, what are your thoughts? I think it's great that we have a new opportunity to see and embrace those images associated with the Black is Beautiful movement. So we can, I definitely think we can consider it a, a rebirth because we have a new opportunity to to see the images in social media, YouTube. There are just so many more resources to understand how to care for ourselves from our heads down to our toes, right, mm-hmm. as women. Right. And we get to see these images affirmed in so many different ways that weren't as accessible to us you know, 30, 40 years ago, right? right. Um, and you can be selective. You can design your social media and the information that comes into your into your space to affirm who you are. And I think that's a pretty remarkable resource, and it gives power to the movement to promote racial identity um, and affirm the beauty that is present in many diverse ways. So mm-hmm. I think it's an extension of what we've done in the past, but it's amplified as a result of our access to technology and social media resources. It's true. Dr. Molly Dean, what are your thoughts? I agree. I do think that social media has definitely provided a, a new platform, a platform that is much more reaching. And, you mm-hmm. know, 
you know, what we used to do in our dorm rooms with each, with each other, we can now do it across multiple states and countries. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is really created um, energy, positive energy around embracing our, our blackness and, and, it's full, and being able to, um, again, as Dr. Grant said, affirm that and not just kind of be, not just do it in isolation. So we can all kind of support each other and, you know, high-five each other on it. It's a lot more um, fun to do in some ways, but also much positive. It is. I I think I noticed even before I when I when I was teaching, I've noticed how some of the um my students of black females were just into this. Like you could just see the pride being with them, you know. And there were times when you know I would say in the beginning of the class where you would see them the come them come in and kind of like ho hum and not really pumped up, so I'd always give them my beginning of the semester um, talk where I would just pump them up, and in so many ways, I'd just let them know, listen, you're here, you're beautiful, you're doing this, you're doing that, and and this is probably this is probably a topic for another show, but I even had to deal with um, my students in the classroom with colorism issues, once, you know, against the others, and I remember one particular point, I just said to them, listen, we're all black here. We may look different, our skin colors may be different, you, our eyes are shaped different, our hair, but we're black people, so this nonsense here is going to stop. Because when you look at it, black is beautiful, and this is what you have to understand and embrace. And I can tell you after a while, talking to them and just going on and on, having dialogues that were healthy, and talking about positive self, you know, your self-esteem, your identity, loving yourself, it made a difference. It really did. Um with the hair, that was also an issue that we talked about. But let me ask you this, Dr. Grange, when black women embrace, you know, black is beautiful, how does this impact their racial identity? You know, and let's look at their self-love, their self-esteem, their self-identity, self-respect, and self-pride. And with, you know, thinking, looking at it from this viewpoint, um, if black is beautiful, does really impact them. How does that help advance them academically, um, personally, academically, and uh, professionally? It's for Dr. Green. Well, I think that the baseline benefit is that it can give us a sense of peace, and it allows us to use our energy in ways that can be optimally productive. And so I think with that sense of peace can come almost like a superpower where we're no longer mm-hmm. focusing on what we don't have, but we're focusing on the assets and the resources that are within us that you can see visually, right, phenotypically, mm-hmm. but also that are actually within us. Um, a lot of times with students, and, and I use it for myself even and with clients, it's this idea that what you focus on will grow. So if you're focusing on the resources that are within you and that you are wearing, which will be your hair, which will be your skin, and all of your awesome features, you can – Use that power. You can enjoy that. Use that power and feed yourself in a way that can allow you to then create something even better um, than yourself, obviously, for your family, for your communities, et cetera. So I think it's critical that we recognize that by promoting racial identity, we're not just 
promoting a, a basic concept that black is beautiful, but we're actually empowering ourselves and the women that we come in contact with, younger women and more mature women, to use their energy, which, again, I will reference as their power, to create the world that they want for themselves. So that may be academically, that may be in relationships, that may be professionally, because they're not wasting energy trying to create something or obtain something that isn't who they are. And so I love this concept of power and how they can use their power. Um, so that's what I think of. They can use that power to create the world that will best serve them and, and contribute to generations to come. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so true. Dr. Wally Jean, what are your thoughts? I I love the 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 use of the the word power and how our embracing of of our um, beauty as women, particularly, and I, for me, it's particularly around hair because hair is so important in our identity as women generally, but as Black women in particular, and so. I really, I really appreciate the notion of, you know, what you feed grows that, you know, surrounding yourself with positive energy and positive uh, images that affirm who you are can only, well, it can only feed your soul, right? Whereas a lot of what we experience in the world as, as black women and girls takes away from us, right? It, 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 um, it taxes us and, you know, um, tries to limit us. So, being able to have something that's constantly putting things back into you as a black woman, I think is, is always a good thing. I, I agree. That's so true. Dr. Bubba Barnes, what are your thoughts? Sure. Um, um, and, and, and thank you all for commenting. I really do think it's about empowerment. And um, even when you look at racial identity, because this is something that I study, it is this idea of I love myself, I am proud of who I am, I am proud of my ancestors' accomplishments, um, I love my hair, um, I feel confident to be in a room. And so these are all the things around the assets that we have. And I felt like they've always been there, but I think that we're just now starting to shed a lens on black women and girls in this way and really starting to understand how empowering this whole black is beautiful movement is, and also this idea of racial pride, it is so important. And it does relate to academic achievement and psychological well-being and all of these things, which is very healthy. So it's, so, so just in tune with the others, um, others in terms of what they said, I think this black and beautiful is definitely a movement. I think that black girls are magic, all of those wonderful things. Um, yeah, and, and so racial identity is important. It is. I think it is also. I think it makes a, a big difference, especially when you instilling into especially young women, you know, your self esteem is crucial. Um over the years with working with colorism, which was my initial research focus, which led me actually just to working with girls and women of color is because what I found out when I was talking to them about their experiences with colorism I ran into so many young girls, and I'm talking like maybe 16, who had these real negative views of themselves. They didn't have the self-esteem. They either thought their skin was too dark or their skin was too white or their hair. And at no time did I hear anyone ever say to these young women, you are beautiful. You know, embrace Mm -hmm. the color of your skin. Embrace your hair. You know, your features, your eyes, your nose. Um, and I used to tell them, you know, you're wonderfully made. There's nothing wrong with you. And what I found disturbing was that some of the girls told me, you know, I've told this to my mom. I've said it to my aunts. I've said it to other people. And 
even though they were told, oh, don't listen to A, B, C, or D, or don't let it get under your skin. The biggest issue for me was no one ever said that you're beautiful and that mm-hmm. you can do anything. Or And see, I, I think that's important, especially for our young girls. Then I ran into older women, we were talking about colorism in the workplace, who had similar stories, just a grown-up version of how they were treated. And in conversations, going back and forth, because I really wanted to do this big study on colorism, and it halted everything in its tracks because I found the need to focus in on how girls and women, the self-esteem, build them up, you know, the self-love, the identity, having pride and respect, you know, self-pride and self-respect. They were the biggest issue. So as we moved along, and then, and you know, to keeping the conversation and the dialogues going. Um, you're right, Dr. Butler Barnes, it was a, a big issue of that believing, not just saying it, but believing and knowing that you're black is beautiful. So which leads me to my next question is, um, in a study titled Promoting Resilience Among African-American Girls, this is Dr. Butler Barnes' study with colleagues, with girls, racial identity is a protective factor but LeBron's, Leith, Williams, Bird, Carter, and Chayos, this is under 2017, noted how racial identity beliefs acted as assets rather than risk factors for African-American girls. And let me give you the site for that. Um, I'll give it to you when I finish the article. But so my question, Dr. Butler Barnes, for you is, how does that racial identity act as an asset and a protective factor for black girls, and not just from an academic standpoint, but in their personal lives as well. Sure, sure. And so one of the things that I've always been interested in is um, this idea of the the empowerment that racial identity has for us, right? And then just understanding and studying it in a population of black girls where usually it's like the comparison between who has it worse, black girls or black boys, Right. And so I wanted to really understand within this context, okay, how does this work for black girls who are experiencing discrimination in the classroom who, because discrimination, of course, we know racial discrimination is traumatic. How does racial identity sort of protect them knowing the, the, the histories and the stories of their ancestors and being proud of themselves within this space? And so we definitely found that it was um, a protective mechanism for girls and over time. So this was like over four years, right? Mm-hmm. So this was beginning in their sixth grade year. So over four years, this racial identity, this racial pride served as a protective factor. And even in additional settings where we may experience some type of trauma or if we see a negative image of ourselves on the media, which we sometimes see a lot, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, access to media sometimes, you know, you can select and choose what you want. Um, but some images of African-American women and girls that sort of tells us our narrative of what we're supposed to be and do, I think that this healthy racial identity will sort of allow you to know who you are. You look at it as a protective mechanism. That's your asset. Like I call that, that's our armor. That's something that we have because it really does encompass self-love, self-esteem, self-identity, self-respect. So it, it, it's all of that sort of wrapped in one. So I, I, I definitely think that it's, it's a protective factor. I'll call it, you know, part of our Black Girl Magic um, toolkit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important. So. 
And I think I think likewise. Um, Dr. Green and Dr. Wally Jean, do you want to comment on that? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Dr. Wally Jean. I, I actually, as uh, Dr. Barnes was speaking, I, I had this moment when I, I remember I grew up in a in a very small town in rural Mississippi, and our my high school was predominantly white, but my elementary school for the most part was predominantly black. And then I went to an HBCU for college, and I remember to to Dr. Barnes's statement that I really did feel like my being comfortable in my blackness would help me to tolerate some things or or not be as bothered by some things that I experienced when I went to predominantly uh, non-black spaces. And I Mm -hmm. I really do see it as a shield, as armor, as as a, Mm -hmm. I called it an inoculation, right, that you know, going to mm-hmm. HBCU, growing up in a black, you know, neighborhood surrounded by black people who, who valued blackness and who promoted blackness, right. inoculated like a vaccination for when I went out into the world and encountered people who would, mm-hmm. who would you know, who would dismiss that or challenge that. And so I really do, I, I really appreciate the work that, that you've done in specifically looking at how that protects our uh, young girls and, and boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think that's excellent. It, it does make a difference. Um, Dr. Green, do you have any thoughts on the, on the um, issue? I mean, I think I think about it, the way that it manifests in a clinical space in terms of supporting the mental health of people who may be in distress is being able to promote their resilience even in the context of distress, which is what ends up happening, obviously, by the time people see someone for psycho, for psychological counseling, and to me, it can promote, again, this sense of peace. When you're, as Dr. Mm-hmm. Wallajan mentioned, armored in a, or developed, right? You might not be armored, but you develop an awareness, even if you weren't born with it, you can develop it, you weren't raised with it, you can develop an awareness of who you are and the forces, if you will, that stand behind you, and you can develop... Even if you want to socialize with it, you can develop a heightened sense of racial identity, which I think right. certain sense, certain settings can promote in a way that again promotes a sense of, a sense of peace, mm-hmm. and True. where you're not, you don't feel like even though you have an armor and you have a shield, you don't feel like you even have to defend yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You can be peace, mm-hmm. at peace in who you are and work towards the values and priorities that are most relevant to you and are most relevant to your community. So I think that work brings why and how we're able to do that to light. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point. Here's my question, um, Dr. Butler Barnes. How mm-hmm. can we, let's say we have girls who are going to an all-girls academy, and mm-hmm. let's say it's predominantly, let's just say it's mixed race, but let's say they're predominantly uh, black girls. How can we implement within and I guess I know we probably couldn't do this with the career curriculum, but how would we be able to get through to our black girls with this racial identity and having pride? And how would we be able to implement that so that it really gets across to them, so that it matters and they get it? Is it something that we'd have to do at home in community programs, mm-hmm. or could it be something that could be done through the school? I think it's actually both. So um, I also study, like, racial socialization, and this is something that um, 
parents do at home or black parents are tasked with doing because we have to in today's society. Um, and even way back is just importance of telling us who we are. They communicate, parents communicate messages around racial pride, racial barriers, egalitarian, all of these wonderful beliefs. But I also think that schools have a role in it too. I mean, part of K-12 education, kids are sort of mandated to go to school. So it's important that regardless of the context that kids are in, I think that we can have these healthy conversations. Me, myself, um, I actually do work within schools that are predominantly white, racially and ethnically diverse schools, working with girls of color around um, self-empowerment, around racial identity, um, in, in, in safe spaces where we can just have honest conversations. We have to acknowledge that this is needed to begin with, right? And so I think this is where we can sort of push the envelope and just sort of, this can be definitely done in schools, right? Because this goes along with this equity piece. Um, mm-hmm. if, we, if schools really want to promote equity, um, and sort of this is the work that I sort of do here. Um, so I definitely think it can be done. And, of course, parents have their role as well, too, because fighting the media with sometimes the images they tell us who we are, yeah. Black girls definitely need spaces that are safe where we can talk about the empowerment, we can talk about self-esteem, and they can talk about things that are happening in society. Mm, that's excellent. I agree 100%. Um, what I noticed, too, I'll, I'll bring that up after my next question. Um, we are our sister's keeper, and as such, we are charged with the task of ensuring the overall well-being of black girls and women. We are aware of the psychological traumas of racism. And I wanted to add in with that we're also aware of how, um, as you noted, Dr. Butler Barnes, Dr. Granger, Dr. Wally John, you all noted how we are portrayed and how we are expected to, quote, um, act, react, or interact. Or even not just that, it's how they portray our black girls in the media. Um, for me, the bulk of shows that I grew up with and that I've seen on television, it was always a little black girl being fresh and sassy and having a smart mouth. Um, in today's society, you know, consider the fact with all the racism that we, that we are dealing with now. How can we, black girls, develop a healthy black identity and at the same time, you know, a healthy self-love and esteem and, like, and our pride and respect. Dr. Wally John, what are your thoughts? Um, I think a lot of what we've been saying already uh, is, is really important, those affirming images and, um, you know, having opportunities to, to amplify um, the, the beauty of being a black girl and a black woman because there are, there are so many uh, examples of that not being the case. So I do think that uh, amplifying that, um, modeling that, I think one of the important things that we can do is not just tell black girls that they are beautiful and they are wonderful, mm-hmm. but to, to show them, show them by loving each other, show them by affirming each other. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, it's those subtle moments, right? You talk about not being told that you're beautiful, you know, that that is something that needs to, you know, black girls need to hear from their mothers, from their aunties, from their, you know, from their, you know, their coach or whomever, just, just 
anywhere at any time and not just this kind of dedicated, oh, I'm going to put you in, in this room and tell you how wonderful you are, but that needs to be infused throughout their their lives, their mm-hmm. day-to-day lives. That's right. um, so that's one way. And, th- I mean, that's just one simplistic um, notion. That's sound good. Dr. Butler-Barnes, what are your thoughts? I mean, I absolutely agree with what um, – um, what was just said, I, I, I think it's this idea around racial socialization, really showing girls reaffirming positive images. I mean, I have two daughters, right? And so I'm always sort of going against, um, okay, well, this is what you see in, see in the media. This is what this may have suggested, but let me show you who you are. And, and, and sort of reaffirming sort of these positive images. I mean, and, and this is through constant racial socialization and constant conversations, not only within school spaces, as was stated, but just in life. This is our job as um, raising black girls, right, to to have, and, and, and black boys as well, but have these kind of um, healthy images that surrounds us, whether it's through Essence Magazine or through, so on them, um, um, you know, young entrepreneurs at a lemonade stand, all of these things are just reaffirming. And I think we just have to be very purposeful and very um, um, intentional about um, displaying positive images and, and, and sort of relaying positive messages. I agree. Dr. Green, your thoughts? Um, I agree with those points about socialization. And something that I've enjoyed watching um, here in Atlanta at one of the institutions that we support um, called the Highlander School is that they promote that racial socialization in mixed race context. So in the middle of a context where there are children of other ethnicities, they're saying specifically what is unique and beautiful about the children of color, which I think for me allows children of color, particularly African-American children in this, in this setting, to be empowered to know that whatever thing they're in, they can affirm themselves and they can affirm each other and they can overtly speak to issues of race, issues of gender in the case of our girls, um, and do so with confidence. And I think that is something that I've really come to appreciate. Another thing that I think is important is to do that in mixed settings as well as non-mixed settings, mm-hmm. right? Not mm-hmm. is to do it mm-hmm. in diverse settings and otherwise because we have a different conversation when we're amongst ourselves, but I think it's also an important mm-hmm. conversation to have. Also something I think about is sharing resources. I mean, for people who are mm-hmm. impacting the lives of black girls, children, period, but in this case specifically black girls, to have a village around them that has resources. This is a camp. This is a book. This is something that's happening. So I love that, again, technology allows us to be reminded of resources like books like Queen Like Me by Kimberly Brown, Princess Hair by Sheree Miller, the new book by Vashti Harrison, Little Leaders, which focuses on women, black women in history. It's awesome that we can be reminded that those resources are there. And, of course, now we have experienced the Black Panther, and we experience a lot of excitement mm-hmm. around that. And so being able to illuminate, again, the power that we have, it isn't actually just in, like, the big screen, right. but being able to make that relevant to what we are talking about day to day and how we think about not just black people in America and black girls in America, but black girls in the diaspora as well, I think is pretty mm-hmm. important. So we've got to maximize that and, and use that and, and, and not allow it to be a fleeting moment, but something that we 
for lack of a better word, recycle and, and remind ourselves well, again and again. That's true. Excellent point. Thank you, everyone. So let's move on. We all know that the needs and experiences of black girls and women, that they are unique um, from the experience from those of girls and women from other groups. We also know that, as we've all mentioned, the self-esteem, pride, respect, and identity, they are paramount um, for the overall psychological, emotional, physical, and social well-being and growth of black girls and, and, and women. My question is, and we, we've already touched on this within part about the schools, so I'm going to focus now on this question. is: Let's look at community organizations. Let's look at the black church, and let's look at our families. How can all three do a better job of addressing the unique needs and understanding these unique experiences of black girls and women? Um, Dr. Butler-Barnes. Um, I just... I think that we need to have honest conversations about um, the expectations of black girls and women within these um, organizations. And, and, and sometimes there's a super um, hero trait that's sort of um, associated with black women and girls as if we're just very invincible and um, nothing sort of impacts us. And, and so even the research literature was sort of going this way for some time. And even when you suggest that, hey, I want to focus on black girls, it's almost like, oh, well, they're doing fine. They have higher graduation rates, so, you know, they're doing fine. And I think as a result of that narrative, I think that this is why we don't see a lot in terms of programming for girls of color. But I do think we can have conversations with our pastors and churches there are community organizations, like, for example, we have Girls, Inc. here. They do a lot of wonderful work. It's national. They do, a wonderful, um, they do wonderful work on um, girls and are very intentional in doing that. Um, um, I, myself, am going to programs and other community organizations that have more programming for boys and asking, okay, well, what about programming, you know, programming for girls? You know, how, well, you know, how does this look? Let's, let, let's sort of have conversations about it. So I think it's just bringing it to people's attention. That's what I've been trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. And just, you know, trying to have honest conversations about this. That's a, a valid, excellent point. What we did also with um, the National Girls and Women of Color Council, we have a division it's called I Am Beautiful Global. And it's basically for girls, um, girls of color, ages maybe 11 to 17 but our focus was building and building their self-esteem we call we have what we call the foundation of beautiful and that self-love self-esteem identity self-identity self-respect and self-pride and what we focus in on is teaching especially girls of color love the color of your skin love who you are you know focus on positive you know the whole positive view instead of bringing in any negativity and what we did do in 2014, we wrote a book. Um, it's called Live Life Beautiful. And it contains, I think, 250 affirmations that were written specifically for girls of color. Mm-hmm. And the book was really, it went off really well. And we had a lot of good feedback. But the reason why we wrote the, the book of affirmations is because we saw there was a need for that positive, positive thought processes and reinforcement for our girls every day, not just once in the blue moon when you go to a program or a workshop. So we had a group of girls, and, you know, we gave them the book, and we said, you know, every day or every two days, just read an affirmation 
you know, focusing on it. And what we found out was that it made a difference for a lot of young girls. And, we, call, you know, we talked about hair, color, um, respect, peer pressure, bullying, families. And we, the book, you know, really impacted them in a positive way to encourage them to write little journal entries about how they were feeling what was going on. So we shared the book with some other organizations and saying to them, hey, you may want to pull something out of here to use for programs for girls in the community because it's so desperately needed. Um, I think as Dr. Butler Barnes just noted, there were not a lot of programs that were out there for girls of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's why what we're trying to do now is we've developed the programs. We're getting ready to roll them out, hopefully by mid-year. Um, now, to help the girls. Um, and it's not just, and here's the thing, what the focus is, yes, we do need to focus on the, like developing skill sets, but it's also, also includes like the ethnic and that cultural little thing with it so that they're learning pride. So whether you're Dominican or you're black, um, whether you're African or you, your culture, your ethnicity, how you associate will be also implemented into the program curriculum. So that they walk out with positive views of themselves, of who they are, of their background, their heritage. I think it makes a difference. Um, Dr. Uh, Wally John or uh, Dr. Green, do you have anything you want to comment? I I, I do. I I think uh, what was previously said about you know uh, black women being um, ignored, particularly in research, has is, is been something that is also frustrating for me because I think mm-hmm. that what happens is because we have this narrative around black women that we're strong and that, you know, we are, we're, we're socialized as women generally, all women, to take care of others, but that is, mm-hmm. you know, amplified among black women. Mm-hmm. And then, but what, it's almost like a catch-22. We, because we're strong, we can't ever show weakness and if we show weakness, people are like people dismiss it, and it's and mm-hmm. we don't want to um, we don't we're not allowed to focus on black women, center black women, right? That even even when we talk about you know issues in the black community, we we have to expand that narrative to include everyone. We can't just talk about the issues that black women experience in the community, mm-hmm. right? And so I do think that um, you know uh, for me holding our community, our churches, our families, our leaders, holding their feet to the fire and saying, no, we're not talking about everybody right now. We're just talking about mm-hmm. black women. What are black women's needs? What are black women's, um, you know, issues? What, what, what do we need to do to stop and listen to black women? Trust them, listen to them, center them, and just stay there. And, and the, the, you know, there, there's an old saying that, you know, if you – but is it it's something like if you fix the if if mama's happy the house is happy or something else to right. that to that effect and I feel mm-hmm. like you know it, again it's oversimplifying but if we could if we could get it right for black women then everyone else could could could, could grow could 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 benefit right mm-hmm. and so I just I just feel like we have to really you know demand that our communities our community organizations, our, our schools, our families, keep their eyes, keep their lenses on black women because that, to me, that's what the solution is. If we, if we can do that, um, we can 
we can make real movement in solving a lot of issues, in my opinion. The other thing I think is important is that when I say listen to black women, for me, you know, we, we, we I love our culture and I love the fact we kind of identify ourselves as, as, as a people. But we also have to be mindful that everyone's experience is the same. And those unique experiences have to be addressed because, um, you know, every solution isn't for everybody. I think really appreciating and understanding individual groups or individual women's experiences and, and allowing that to drive the conversation as opposed to, like we mentioned at the beginning, trying to force a one-size-fits-all on everyone. Right. I, I think there's too much of that also. Uh, Dr. Green, do you have any thoughts? I think it's been well addressed in the conversation. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I would add is, again, being mindful of our resources that already exist. Mm-hmm. There are maybe not many, but there are potential models for what can be particularly advantageous to black girls um, who are different, diverse groups of black girls, right? Because the same intervention, as was mentioned, isn't going to work for everyone. But I'm just a huge fan of being mindful of existing models or components of existing models that we might want to replicate and disseminating that information so that, while we're talking about it in academia, people who are over the community organizations and who are working in the churches have access to this information to be mm-hmm. implementing some of the strategies that we know exist at the academic level. I recognize that takes time, that takes resources, but again, right. it's all about how we use our, our power. And instead of focusing on solely what we don't have, there may be opportunities to continue to enhance our awareness of what we do have, even if what we do have is scarce, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. maximizing it while we expand upon it, I think, is, is an opportunity we don't want to miss. Mm-hmm. That's true. I'm one organization that's trying to make a difference with the research. It's a collaborative to advance equity. Um, I think it's the research for girls and women of color. And they're out of the Anna Julia, I mean, it was Cooper Center. And I think it's a Wake Forest, what is it, Wake Forest? Mm-hmm. North Carolina, That's North correct, Wake Forest. Mm-hmm. And NGWCC, we joined them as a member. And we're conducting a study on um, black girls and women. But I think the initiative, with the way they're focusing in on more research on girls and women of color, I think that's going to add a lot. You know, great deal of information for the literature in the field, number one. And number two, I think it's going to change the, um, it's going to cause a great shift. And that shift is going to be one that's going to be extremely important for us. I can just tell you in preparing for, to launch visibility, there is so much limited research out there on black girls and black women. And this is just for the mm-hmm. My Sister's Keeper series. I was um, little, a little frustrated with the fact that it's so much, it's just too limited. So hopefully with what your initiatives and with everyone here and everybody else who's doing research and projects, we'll be able to see a shift where we'll be able to go to resources and find the information or have programs that will definitely make a difference. Okay, so let's move on and look at um, being authentic and unapologetic. According to uh, Wally John and Green's, 2016, and I'm referencing everyone 
um, article essay written by Dr. Wally John and Dr. Green titled Unapologetically, The Cost and Calling of Black Women, Authenticity in the Academy. It was published in 2016 in the Journal of Colorism Studies. So here's my question, Dr. Wally John and Dr. Green, your phone for you. Um, according, to, according to both of you, it's like referencing you, black women were perceived as rude, disrespectful, or angry when they portray their unapologetic self. But what it means to be a black woman unapologetically is being a woman who walks in her authentic self, end quote. The unapo- I'm sorry, I'm not even quote. The unapologetic black woman acknowledges her own feelings, thoughts, and behaviors. Of more importance, she does not generally prioritize others' feelings, thoughts, and behaviors over her own, end quote. So here's my question. What does it mean when we say to be unapologetically black? Dr. Wally, I know Tom, Dr. Grange. I, I said I would, I would separate those things. Uh, I think being black is, mm-hmm. you know, how each person individually experiences that and how they define that. So that to me is a, a kind of a separate, the, the racial identity, what, what mm-hmm. that means will vary a person. What to right. me is important unapologetically is that whatever that is, that you don't owe an explanation to anyone about it, for it. You don't have to describe it. You don't have to defend it. You can, and I, I referenced Dr. Granger's earlier comments about peace. It, uh, it gives you this, this spirit of peace, like I am who I am. You don't have to like it, right? You don't have to appreciate it. But that's not my problem, right? That, that your feelings about it are irrelevant. Well, no, irrelevant, that's the word I'm looking for, right? It's very irrelevant okay. because I get to, you know, so often we are told as black women and girls that we have to conform and we have to, to um, be a version of ourselves that fits in whatever space, fit in school, fit in our families, fit in our community, fit in our profession. And to me, being unapologetic is that I get to be who I am, and I don't have to fit. You have to fit over That's what unapologetic means to me. Now, I, that, that absolutely comes with consequences. It comes with repercussions. But it is a space that I think gives us internal peace that allows us to accept or better accept those consequences and repercussions. Dr. Grange, what are your thoughts? How would you define? I agree with all of that. Okay. So <laughs> let, let me ask you this. All of that. So can can you be unapologetically black, or you can't? Can you be unapologetically black? Yes. Can. You? Yes. 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 Okay. We can. We can, and I think there's um, there are consequences, and there are benefits. I mean, there are consequences that can be positive and negative, but that's with any choice right. that we make in life. Mm-hmm. So the more that we prepare our young people to be aware of those consequences, mm-hmm. the more prepared they are to deal with them. Right. Okay, good. Excellent point. So let me ask, um, this question is for everybody. Why are black women sometimes sometimes perceived as being rude, disrespectful, or angry when they portray their unapologetic, I say this in quotes, selves? We'll start with Dr. Go ahead, whoever's first, go ahead. 
I, I was going to say that I, I one of the things that I, I in, in addition to studying violence and relationships, I look at gender and how gender influences our choices and our behavior and our gender identity and gender um, socialization. And one of the things that I think is really uh, contextualizes this, this unapologetic and why black women are perceived as the, the way that they are is that we are, as a society, we socialize women to be accommodating, right? That, that's across the board. Women are supposed mm-hmm. to, you know, make sure that, you know, nobody's feelings are hurt and that everybody's getting at to it within while sacrificing, right? We're supposed to sacrifice. That is the way we are socialized to be. So I think that mm-hmm. what happens is when a black woman is in her authentic, unapologetic self, and that doesn't mean not accommodating. That doesn't mean not being, you know, thoughtful or considerate of others. But it means that she, as I, as our the quote said previously, she doesn't prioritize others' feelings over her own, right? And because of that, I think I think people find it uncomfortable because everyone else is doing that, right? Or maybe not everyone else, but many people are doing that. So when when you're not doing it, then the the way that, that others have to rationalize your behavior, really rationalize their own behavior, is to to other you, right? You're being rude. You're being disrespectful. You're being somehow not the way everyone is supposed to, quote, supposed to be. And so I think that that is a part of the, the other part is just people, you know, we just have a, the, a, a history of being perceived. Our anger is being perceived as threatening and out of proportion, and I think that's just a way that has been a mechanism of control, a, a, a way to try to control black women and others for, you know, forever, for centuries. Does anyone believe that there is this, that there is this so-called, this belief out here, or the focus rather, that we all, you know, that you should fit in the box, that one size does fit all? And when, I definitely and don't. People, I don't know. Is there, do you think others believe that about black women? So let's say a white woman could believe that, well, you know, Donna Marie is a black woman and Sharita is a black woman. So you're supposed to fit into this box that I have here for the two of you. And I guess it goes back to the stereotypes, too. These are stereotypes mm-hmm. that one size fits all. So all black women have to act the way Donna and Sharita act. Or, and this is how I categorize you. Is, do you think that belief is still there, even in the millennium, about us? I think it's... Go, go, oh, go ahead. Go, you, Mindy. Go. No, okay, sorry. <laughs> no, I no, definitely think... Okay, I definitely think um, that there are expectations a way that black women are supposed to act, and I think a lot of it comes from media. Um, I think that we can see this even from very young girls where you have the sassy black girl or you have the older sassy um, African-American woman. You have these expectations, and sometimes even within the space that I am, being in a predominantly white university, there are expectations that other faculty have of me and my response to students, or it's almost like they want us to entertain them. So it definitely is a stereotype around how we're supposed to posture ourselves um, and I think a lot of it is driven by the media. Now, do I think we fit, is it one size fits all? Absolutely not. 
Um, I think there are differences between black American girls, and I think we're all different, but we don't fit in the same box. Just like we don't expect for other non-black folks to fit in a one-size-fits-all model. That's right. But I think it's, you know, we have to just start going against that. Okay, so let me answer this. I just wanted to mention that I think colorism is still an issue when we're talking about Mm -hmm. what we expect from women of color. Because I think the reality is that the more black you are, for lack of a better word, the closer you are to your authentic African, if you will, that there are different ideas about what you should do. And the further removed you are from that, there are different Mm -hmm. ideas about who you should be and what you should do. And those ideas are imposed on us through, as we've discussed, early socialization processes. So, again, as the, as, the, as the family and as the community surrounding and nurturing young black girls, we need to, again, dispel those, those myths, and we can't protect them from it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. let them know that those, mm-hmm. those expectations exist, and they should not be feeding in. We, we want to support them and not feeding into them as well. And I'm particularly yeah. passionate about that as the mom of a, a young girl who I see struggling mm-hmm. with those issues. Um, and probably as a woman who struggles herself at some point. Mm-hmm. No, you're, you're <laughs> right. That's an excellent point. I want to add point. that, you know, these, these images in, in the media, these tropes that we see, it, it, it you know, has forever frustrated me that we don't have more variation in our images, right? Because they are just mm-hmm. that. They're just kind of singular tropes that play the sassy, the, the, the mammy, the, you know, whatever keeps playing out right. and because we don't have the range of right. um, images that other groups have. It's, it's, we have to fight that much harder to give black girls th- that um, those, not just those images, but those models, right? They have, there's a mm-hmm. myriad of ways that they can be that don't have to fit into these five or six, you know, Category. Exactly. They can be nerdy. Exactly. They can be, uh, you know, shy. They can be a lot of different ways, but that has to be supported. Not, I mean, obviously the media is a, a huge influencer, but we have to, you know, supplement that because they don't get enough of it in just the media. Although social media, I think social media out um, outlets are expanding that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you. I want to go back to Dr. Grange's point. You made a good point with the colorism because that is a big issue, especially with our girls. And there was an article out, I think it was maybe a year or two years ago, where the author referenced how darker complexion girls are treated or, or received harsher punishment in schools as opposed to lighter complexion black girls. So we have that issue of interracial colorism. As we know, not just only interracial, we have interracial also, where the darkest mm-hmm. skin are treated, darker skin girls are treated, are punished more severely, treated disparately for, because of that skin color. And I think also that that is something that has to be addressed. And mm-hmm. I cannot remember if it was a research study or an article that I wrote, that I read about this, but even with adults, even with women, grown women, the color is an issue. Um, also comes into play again, especially in the work environment. If it's this belief, you know, well, and this is something I also wrote in a case study. I was I wrote a, um, a series of case studies on colorism to use in trainings, 
And in one of the particular case studies, it was an issue where a white supervisor um, stereotyped, negatively rather, negatively stereotyped a darker complexion um, employee solely based on his skin color. And this continues to happen every day. Um, okay. I've seen it even here in I remember I lived in Maryland for 23 years and then relocated to New Jersey, to New Jersey. And I've seen it here since I've been here alone in Jersey. Um, the treatment, how you're treated differently. Yes, it happened in Maryland. Here, to me, I'm from the mindset that it's more blatant in your face. And it is obvious and it, and it happens. And when you do bring the issues up of colorism, it's this total denial. Like, what in the heck are you talking about? I did not treat her differently because of it. And it's true. It does happen. I've seen it. So, mm-hmm. being that we do, we know that we have this issue with colorism interracially, meaning for our listeners, meaning that it's someone who's outside of that particular racial group or um, treating others who belong to a different racial group disparately, solely based on the color of their skin in which favorable or unfavorable treatment is afforded to the individual. So what are your thoughts, ladies, and as you brought up the colorism thing, Dr. Grange? So how do we, as black women, let's just say, for example, we're in the workplace, like corporate America. No, what the heck, let's say academia. And let's say there's a darker complexion professor and a lighter complexion and a white employee treats the dark complexion black woman in a very negative, stereotypical manner than she treats the lighter complexion. What do we do? I mean, yeah, you can report it to HR and it's an EOC issue, but how do we as black women, and let's say if the two black women are good friends, how do you deal with that then? What happens? I wonder if well, there's one thing, like how, one thing, how do you deal with it within your group and within your, your family, right, the dyad, and mm-hmm. even if you're not friends, and then mm-hmm. how do you deal with it in a, in a way that addresses the inappropriate behavior? And I think, I don't think there's a perfect answer, but one thing that comes to my mind is talking to my sister first, whether we're close or not, and saying, I see this, right? right. Giving voice exactly. to it in our space, mm-hmm. to me, is very important, because we don't know how that will go or how she's perceiving it, right? So if I'm the lighter complexion person in the situation, being able to go, and technically in our culture, that means I have a slight step up in terms of, not much maybe, but a slight step up in terms of the power dynamic in the situation, being from the perception of the person who's doing inappropriate behavior, being able to go to her and say, I see this, and empowering her and supporting her and say, do we want to act on this? What, how do you feel about this? Because I think that that collaboration, regardless of what happens with HR, is something that can last, whereas mm-hmm. this inappropriate behavior may or may not. So I think fostering the collaboration and the sisterhood is, is a first step. Yeah, exactly. And seeing where we collectively want to go from there is is one strategy, understanding that there are probably others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that's excellent because that bond that sisters in unity bond is important there, especially in this situation, because um, as, a, as a consultant, I've dealt with so many cases involving colorism in the work environment. And one of the f- first things that I really think is important is that bonding. Don't let it divide you. You come together. 
And also there are issues where there's complete, when I say complete, absolute, any word I can use to mean final, denial on so many fronts. When it's interracial colorism, it's like, oh, I would never. I treat all of everyone the same way. I don't care that she's dark and that she's white. But in reality, it is an issue, and it does exist. What makes it worse is when you have two black women who are participating in acts of intraracial colorism, which means within the same race for our listeners. That is even worse, and it's also an issue where someone had said to me a couple of months ago, and when I was conducting an investigation, that there was no, the colorism only exists, you know, we're talking about with black women now. Um, if it's the person's white or dark, and that's not true, it can go across any skin color range. I've had cases where someone was maybe two shades lighter or darker than another individual. It still occurred. It even occurs with medium and light, medium and dark. You know, it. It, it 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 occurs in so many across so many spectrums, but my question is, when we see it as an intraracial colorism mm-hmm. issue with two black women in the work environment, let's forget about HR for a moment, and let's say one of us is the third person witnessing all of this. How would you address the issue with these two black women? Now remember, take it from the standpoint of being black women. Sisters in unity and having a bond there. What, how would you react or what would you say? Anybody can feel free to respond. I think Dr. Grange's uh, initial point about acknowledgement, I think that your, uh, Dr. Colbert, your, your points about how we have, we can sometimes as a community have difficulty, um, you know, owning that colorism exists. Mm-hmm. And and I think so the first step to me is to, to say I see it. I see this happening or I see something that I think is this and let me, you know, let the person, you know, try to dispel that. Because, you know, just because I think that's what I'm seeing, it may not be that. But with that said, I think, you know, it's important. You know, we we were we were enslaved, right? We we got it, mm-hmm. it has not been that long mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. these things have stopped being our reality and so I think you know being being generous in in our in our spirit with where we are as as a community as as women as black women right that these things are going to show up they, mm-hmm. the, the 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 effects of of slavery the effects of colonization they are going to show up and we have to be gentle with each other around addressing that or I would like to see us be more gentle with each other around addressing mm-hmm. it while That's still right. holding each other accountable for being there for each other. So I do think, you know, having conversations, and, you know, we don't talk about privilege as much within our race, right? right? We, we talk about mm-hmm. the privilege of white people to us or others to us. But, you know, there is a, there is a white light in privilege. And, you know, if, you know you, to me, if you are a person who holds that privilege, whether it's a shade lighter or two shades lighter or whatever it is, then try to use that privilege to lift and 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 um, uh, support others who may not have that privilege. That's what we are all need. That's what we should all be doing with whatever privileges we hold. We should be using that privilege to help those who are at a disadvantage for whatever reason. And so, to me, that's one of the ways that I would try to address it. Is try to be gentle with my sisters around 
whatever that mm-hmm. means or wherever that comes from in them, but also to, to, to name it and to own it and to call it what it is so that we can start dismantling it. Good, excellent point. Dr. Butler Barnes, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think I'll yeah, so I'll agree with um, Dr. Riley and Grange in terms of acknowledging affirmation and this whole idea of privilege within ourselves because this is not going anywhere. And I keep referencing the impact, just how media is so impactful and how it sort of portrays this same issue within our race, right, by maybe um, a, a, a lighter-skinned girl being perceived this way versus a, uh, versus a darker-skinned girl. We need to start having conversations around us um, with each other, and I think we need to own it. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's a really part of an ugly history. But I, I mean, we have to have we 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 have to have these conversations with each other. We do. Be we gentle do. and honest, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think excellent points. Thank you, everyone. So let's look at the negative stereotypes and disparate treatment. Black girls and women are often negatively stereotyped, which we basically discovered this in a sense. They're marginalized, criticized. They're ashamed about their bodies, their hair, appearances. We just finished talking about color. Another phenotypes. Um, they criticize also about their styles, their behaviors, and treat disparately in school and the workplace. My question is, Dr. Butler Barnes, how does this negativity affect the psychological, emotional, physical, and social well-being and growth of black girls and black women? Well, I mean, it has detrimental impacts on girls' um, self-esteem, um, their academic achievement over time. I mean, and there is some research that sort of shows this. That's more of the like the, the the qualitative studies around this stuff, around these conversations. Um, I think the way that we're stereotyped and marginalized. I just think it's 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 again, it's always who has it the worst between uh, black women and boys, and we don't black. I'm sorry, black girls and. Um, Black boys, and we don't have enough research out here to really talk about the detrimental consequences of this. And I think that once we start having numbers with this, having conversations, and really talking about the disproportionate number of African American girls who are expelled just because of dressing, in terms of what they're wearing, you know, their own bodies, I think it's we're we're past this limit of just not saying anything or keeping this among our among ourselves. This negativity is is going to be impactful unless we sort of we need more research, we need more people focused on this, we need to have these conversations because it's going to continue to happen. If do you we think? Yeah. Right. Do you think um, if we start with, let's say for example with the schools, and tell me if this is, and everybody feel free to tell me this, just say Doctor C that's out the window for a fetch. Would it be? Um, would it make an impact, make a difference, or help to have an organization go into these schools and just talk to, like, the teachers, uh, the staff, the administration? I'm talking about, like, in high schools and middle and elementary schools and give them, like, a thorough training or professional development workshop where they learn about how harmful their um, – the type of impact um, – with these issues, how, how it impacts these girls across the board, psychologically, to physically, to socially, to everything, do you think that would make a difference and kind of help them when they walk back into that classroom 
or they're dealing with a young uh, person, a young girl, for whatever reason, whatever issue, do you think it would, something would click then with them where they would say, okay, perhaps we are punishing this young woman, this young black girl, severely or too harshly. Maybe with the professional development training or workshops, it would help them gain a better understanding of the unique needs and experiences so they would then know how to appropriately deal with them. Would that help? I think it could be. Go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, I think everything can help. I I think that there is the, the, there is there is what we can do, but there's also the will for it to be done. Like I I think that you have to be. Uh, Dr. Grange referenced this organization here, the Highlander School. I think that there is there has to be a, a space that, that, that it, no no learning is going to occur with someone who is resistant to what you're you're bringing, right? And I think that you have to first acknowledge. That the need is there, and that is that is a more difficult task, right? Because you know we all know it's not just about colorblindness; it's also about this notion. I tr- I love all children, right? I love all kids. I love it, and but that that, mm-hmm. that the need to center black girls, to center their unique experiences, has to to me that has to be the kind of the ground that we are planting in. If we don't have mm-hmm. that, I, I wonder how effective professional development and, and, you know, talking about this is really going to be if we don't have that, that foundation that it needs to happen, right, that it's important for it to happen for our girls and our, you know, and our boys, right? And, and you know, we know mm-hmm. that, the, you know, many of the teachers, particularly in elementary schools, that our children are experiencing don't look like them, right? And so that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a hard place to start. But I, I think, you know, every little bit helps everything we do, you know, it definitely can't hurt. Um, Dr. Butler Barnes, do you think it would make a difference to them just to just um, at least I don't think, get them? Sure, sure, sure. So my thing is I don't think it's going to work unless people address their own biases and right. get rid of sort of like this colorblind mentality. If they're mm-hmm. not doing that, even presenting numbers to them, people will be questionable about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that unless they sort of acknowledge who they are, and it has to be ongoing, I've never been the person to believe that you attend one professional development class, you are saved, you are free, all of a sudden you cross over. I don't believe that. I That's think it needs to be ongoing. We need to acknowledge this. We need to have conversations. People need to be very uncomfortable before they mm-hmm. get comfortable. And I think that we have to acknowledge this because numbers don't lie. And when you see these disproportionate numbers and discipline and the way that black girls and boys are treated within school settings, it, 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 it's beyond the professional development. We've got to start talking about biases and stereotypes and expectations and sort of how it's playing out. So I think but it needs to be a little doing, bit of both. But is, is anybody, are the schools doing this? Are they, as far as anyone, I don't know if any that are doing it, but does anyone know of any schools that are actually having these discussions with your staff? Um, uh, administration teachers where they're being trained to understand and identify that they're being biased, that you are treating that little black girl differently than you're treating that little Asian girl, Latino girl. And is there any, does anybody know of anything? When I did the research, I couldn't find anything where anyone was actually doing that, unless, of course, some 
places do just keep it locked in. Um, you don't see it advertised on their site so that they're having this type of training. But does anyone know of any schools that are doing that to help them deal with their biased issues so that they can have a better rapport? I don't know of anything that's been packaged that can be disseminated per se, but there are mm-hmm. schools that are appear to be, some schools, maybe not public schools, that appear right. to be overt in their effort to promote fair treatment, racial socialization, healthy racial socialization practices, um, decreased levels of social injustice. Mm-hmm. Again, we're in Atlanta, so here in Atlanta, uh, we have the Long Clark Academy where they have um, educators who are diverse and oftentimes they have several, at least visually it looks like they have a diverse staff, Mm -hmm. and they're definitely trying to promote racial identity among kids and doing that in an overt way, and it seems to be beneficial, but I don't know the data about that. But at least that's an example that we could look at harder to see what are you doing in your institution that's different than what other people are doing in theirs. And one thing mm-hmm. that it appears they do, at least on the, the surface level, um, is seeing what works for kids, using instructional strategies and, and um, coping strategies and socialization processes that really resonate with the children and probably also the children's families. But, again, there are probably other types of models, but that's just one that comes to mind in terms mm-hmm. of a learning institution that is not run by people of African descent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True. Excellent. Mm-hmm. That's true. Excellent point. Yeah, that was my next question. You just covered it. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I will move on past it because I think I, I do believe, and this is from experience working with young girls, I do believe, and this supports um, Dr. Butler Barnes' study, that there is a need to make sure some of these issues are addressed. Because you take a young girl who's in middle school and she receives, she's disparately treated all the way through high school. And if there's not anyone monitoring or talking to her, or, you know, keeping her going and lifting her up, she can become bitter. She can become angry. She can have outbursts because she's holding all of this in. So now she's in high school, and this young lady's having these outbursts, and then all of a sudden they want to label her as being a problem, a disciplinary issue, when in fact, the reality of the matter is that she's holding all of this anger inside because she's dealt with so much on the lines of being just treated disparately as a black girl from middle school through high school. So I think it is important to um uh, I, I do say something to that um, because I do think it's one of the one of the things that I obviously I, I my well maybe not obviously but one of the things that I, I look at is violence against women. Um, and one of the things that I think recently I was talking about is this notion that, for instance, that black girls, black children um, are seen as more mature earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Because that they are perceived as, mm-hmm. you know, more culpable and more accountable at an earlier age than other children. And I think it's so interesting, even the way we talk about, you know, way, the way we address children, or not maybe not we, but the way the the school system, educational system addresses children. Children are children, right? So my right. I have a five-year-old son, and, you know, if my five-year-old son is, is throwing chairs or doing something in class, he's a five-year-old child. So obviously there must be something going on with him because children don't just throw chairs mm-hmm. just to be thrown, right? 
And I think that that, that is like a specific example of what happens to our children is that they are perceived as dysfunctional or uh, or or intentional about their behavior earlier, mm-hmm. whereas the children who are not our that don't look like our children. Are, are, there's some other explanation, right? And so people start looking for some other explanation for their behavior. But our children are held responsible, and I, I think that to Dr. Um, uh, Butler Barnes's earlier statement, until we until we are honest in our educational system, our teachers and our principals and our, our, our school personnel are honest about the ways in which they see our children, there is not a whole lot we can do other than mm-hmm. holding them accountable, right, and, and fighting them, right. ultimately they 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 are making these choices implicitly. They are making these these mm-hmm. these decisions right. about our children's motivations without consciously being aware of it. So it's hard to change that. We have to uh, until we call it out and, and hold people accountable. It will never change because they just don't see our children in the same way that they see other children. And I just want to say, anytime, anytime that we hear statistics around four and five year old children being expelled and their children of color, predominantly black kids, we should be angry. That's right. That's true. Because that I believe, I know this is, I, I'm jumping in, but I believe if if what if something is happening in your classroom and you have, that you have to expel a four or five year old, you need to figure out how you can manage right. the classroom. Now, that right. means that there's something going wrong in the context of that space that you need to fix because the children are not safe with you. <laughs> like you need to figure out what you are doing exactly. incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I was just getting ready to say that. If if a four like you're right, then that teacher's the one who I think should go. Because there's no way right. I could ever embrace anyone, I don't care who it is, telling me that you had to expel a four and five year old kid or what was it uh, last year, two years ago. Um, the little kid was two or three years old getting kicked out of daycare because uh-huh. of his behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So my and it, and it was an issue when this young black mother brought it up and they started really uncovering things where this was happening to a lot of young black children. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I agree. It's, you know, to me, five and under, even to me, a, a ten and under, then I'm wondering what's wrong with you because you should be able to have mm-hmm. that ability to manage your students and handle the classroom. And a lot of times, and this happened with a neighbor of mine, then we'll get back to one our subject, where the teacher in a sense almost provoked the child by the way she was treating her and saying things to the little girl. So some, you know, that's a whole other show, but you're right. Excellent point, Lisa. Thank you. Okay, so let's look at this. We are how can we, rather, as our sisters keepers, and when I say sisters keepers, I'm not saying that we have to go out, you know, like bulldogs and constantly protect. It's just that we're concerned, we care about our well-being and growth of each other. That's for our listeners. So how can we, as our sisters keepers, continue to defy the negative stereotypes and address the disparate treatment issues, which I think we basically just talked about this. Um, wouldn't everybody agree? Yes. We basically yes. covered that. So I'm going to move on. But for our listeners, um, if you missed it, go back through the archive because we covered Thank some you. really good information here that actually answers this question, which I should have spoken before I read. But anyway, moving on. Let's talk about voices and visibility. We are all aware of how the black, of how 
Black girls and women are often ignored, considered invisible, and their voice is not heard and often silenced. My question, I'll start with you first, Dr. Butler Barnes, then go to Dr. Green to Dr. Wally um, John. Why are the voices of black girls and women often silenced and their visibility often ignored? I mean, because we've always looked at, um, and just and this is just through my own sort of like research literature and just lived experiences as a black woman, um, there is this sort of superhero trait that we're sort of assigned. And so people think or have this illusion that we're doing very well. It's statistics such as, oh, well, African-American women are, you know, they have some of the higher graduation rates. Um, and so they do this comparison always with black males with us. Um, and so, of course, black males have, you know, racially stigmatized in very different ways than black women are, but it sort of leaves us, you know, invisible, you know, with the, 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 the saturation of research that has been on black men and boys. And so we've often been ignored, but we've been visible when we talk about media or social, you know, media, whether it's on the Internet or certain news programs. You know, people know some things or they associate the negative stereotypes with us. But, I mean, these are sort of one of the reasons why, because of how society views us, how society views us. So until we start having these conversations and putting this work out here, you know, people, I, I think it will continue. But, I, but I'm hopeful that, you know, through this programming and the work of some of the sisters on um, um, Dr. Grange and um, Dr. Wiley, I think that, you know, we can at least start to address some of this. But I think a lot of it has to do around this this narrative that we have, you know, these superpowers. So, right. I agree. Dr. Grange? Um, I agree with a lot of that. And I would also offer that I think there, oftentimes we're silenced, but then I, I, I'm concerned that oftentimes our voices are manipulated or misused. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that to the degree that our voice is, is adding to the conversation that people want to have, then the voice can be amplified, but that voice is never, aren't, those voices aren't often invited to lead a, a discussion, right. even if that discussion is relevant to the group that we are from or represent. And I think that oftentimes it makes people feel uncomfortable. I mean, people don't do well being uncomfortable. They want to avoid being uncomfortable. And black women, I think, have a, a gift for being able to speak to injustice and, and, and take on the responsibility of speaking to injustice in a pretty significant way. And I think right. black girls do too. I mean, those little girls have some power in them um, and will mm-hmm. find things out. And so from an early, historically even, there probably is a, is a, a pattern of silencing that voice because you don't want that voice to become too powerful. Because mm-hmm. if that voice True. maximizes mm-hmm. its power, then they don't know what's going to pop out. So, and given that black women are socialized from a young age to be the the facilitators and the nurturers in their community for better or worse, that voice influences the actions and the thoughts of of everyone in the community. Um, So I I don't mean to get militant about it, but I think that's a strategic initiative to not just silence black women, but silence black women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I, I keep coming, I mean, I keep, the, the word power resonates with me a lot. And I, I don't, this is, again, you know, I know we've heard of that kind of hierarchy of, of, of 
you know, oppression, you know, like if you if you look at the food chain, if you look at the racial food chain, and racial and gender food chain, you know, white men at the top, white women second, mm-hmm. black men, women, right? Black women are at the bottom. And I think, you know, we have to call a, you know, call a thing a thing that our voices are silent because they are powerful and because nobody wants to lose their position of power. Nobody wants to give up. Right, and so we are perceived. Our power is perceived as threatening. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we we want to use it when it's beneficial to, to uh, others. Want to use it when it's beneficial to them, but ultimately they don't ever want to give away too much room, too much space, because they may perceive us as taking over. And I think that that is a a real a real concern of those who are in power, which means that they're going to do whatever they can to keep us silent. And, and invisible. You're right. And, and I, I think and you I, also bring up a good point because thinking about the election in Alabama and how many, you right. know, how black women came and, you know, sort of saved the day, you know, they wanted our voice right. there, but they can be silenced mm-hmm. in other ways. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I think it's important. Um, that was an excellent point. That's going to make a real good conversation for another show. So keep checking your emails, too. Um, here's another issue, too. When it comes to black women and educational leadership, why is it 2018 wrote an article? It was probably like a little essay, really. And she noted that black women are purposely being silent in educational leadership. My question, I'll start with you, Dr. Grace, and Dr. Molly Johnson, Dr. Butler Barnes. In your opinion, in your experiences, or what you've read, or whatever, do you believe or think, see that there is an issue where black women are being silenced and they're involved in educational leadership? And if so, what do we do about it? I mean, well, I think it speaks to the point that, that was made in terms of, to a degree, for sure. Again, we have a lot of diversity initiatives going on, so to the degree that black women are contributing to the, the to meeting the quota in terms of diversity initiatives, I think we want, there may be the, the impression that you want to hear those voices there, but we know that higher education has a lot of components to it, not just diversity, everything from budgeting to curriculum development to national level representation. So I think that um, the silencing is happening and in terms of how can it be addressed, I mean, I think that's a complicated question. Um, trying to change a system that isn't designed to benefit us, to benefit us, um, is, uh, is, is, a, is a, tricky, a tricky type of dilemma, and I think it takes a special force in terms of the type of woman who wants to engage in, in that fight, because I would suggest that it actually is a fight. But... Um, starting with issues around diversity and bringing light to that in general mm-hmm. um, and going in that direction. And, and I think for black women who want to be in academia, being able to represent not just black women but diverse groups mm-hmm. is pretty important, especially as our, mm-hmm. as our culture becomes more diverse across all the diversity types that exist. Um, the more women can do that, I think the better position they're in. But I don't think I don't know what will rectify it. I think that can just improve the condition. Mm-hmm. Again, because I don't believe higher education in this country is designed to benefit people of color. 
So, I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. Um, I pause because I don't, I don't have a rectified point. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Dr. Wiley, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I, I concur 100% as someone who aspires to be in educational leadership. It is a fight. It is a, it's, 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 it's a, it gets a, and it can get brutal at times, right? And and I oh, don't yeah. I don't really have an answer for why, other than to to reiterate what I said before, because it means sharing and or losing power, and nobody really wants to do that. And so, um, and I say, you know, I mean power broadly and you know specifically, like everybody's kind of protecting their turf, and academia is notorious for mm-hmm. protecting your turf, right? We, in a very right. in, in environment mm-hmm. where there are limited resources, everybody is trying to hold on. And so I, I think that it's just, there's just not a a, um, a will to share power, and that is what is perceived as a sharing power and or, or losing power, and that's just not something people do easily or willingly. True. Dr. Butler Burns, your thoughts? Yeah, actually, I agree with Dr. Um, Wiley Jean and um, Dr. Grange. I think it's, just, it's it's this idea of, you know, they want us in these positions, but I think they could silence us silence us in some ways, or they want our voice to to benefit them. I think it has a lot to do with the the administration of the institution. But I'm along the lines of these institutions were made for us. They, you know, so. Yes, I agree with the others. Yeah, I I can just tell you all from uh, experience. I worked as a vice president of operations, assessment, institutional research at a college in Washington, D.C. a couple years ago. And I caught hell on both ends. I caught it from my black people working there, and I caught it from the whites. And it was to such a degree where these people's goals to come to work every day was for nonsense and drama and not for the advancement of the institution. And I'm the type of person, I will call it for what it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it to make you feel better about it, about yourself or what you're doing. I'm not going to ignore it and walk away. I will call it for what it is. And when I did, it was like, oh, my gosh, oh, not me. And what I found so annoying and ridiculous was that I shoot straight from the hip. I'm not going to sugarcoat a thing for anybody because it is what it is. And when you sugarcoat, you give people a false sense of reality. If you come, you know, you're direct with it. But the point that I'm trying to make is that there was this belief that, well, you're a black woman. And and here's the thing. You came in like a wrecking ball because everything here was such a mess. And you came in, tore down the mess and, and to fix it the right way. But they didn't want it fixed, at least not by a black woman. So that was an issue for me. I've dealt with more racism and higher education than I ever ever imagined that I would. Mm-hmm. And for me, as as a, as a black woman, for me, when I see it occurring, I'm not going to stand by. I'm going to call you on it and address it with you. Now I know how to do it very tactfully and professionally, but. You have to address the issues, and if you don't, and it's like a double-edged sword, because if you address it, it's an issue. If you don't address it, it's an issue. Mm-hmm. And I just found out, especially when I, when I was in a professor level, 
as an educator, it was entirely too much nonsense going on where I saw how the black women were being silenced. They were. Mm-hmm. And I would put my hand on a Bible to say it. It was obvious. It was blatant. When I brought it up to a dean who happened to be an African, uh, actual natural, naturalized African man, his response to me was, well, don't say anything. You don't want them to get upset. Mm-hmm. But see, that's the problem. When you're dealing in environments where you have to say to me, I don't want Jane Doe, who's a known racist or has a problem with black women, to get upset because you can call her on this racist activity or behavior. When you, as the leader, say that to me, you have now become the problem mm. because it needs to be addressed. And by you allowing them to continue on with this, this is the way things have always been done around here. And this is how we treat black women or women of color. You accept it or get out. It's not good. And I can't tell you the number of black women I've spoken to over the past couple of years who are just, their lives are like living hell in higher education academia. Um, I think it's important that we be able to call the issues for what they are, that they are addressed in a very tactful manner. But then, like, on the flip side of that, like someone said to me yesterday, so what happens, you call it, it's addressed, and your life turns into a nightmare while you're there mm-hmm. because subtle things are done. So this particular person I spoke to chose to just deal with it and keep dealing with it as opposed to, um, you know, bringing light, going back and bringing light to, hey, things have gotten worse since I brought this to your attention. She said to me, Donna, I can't. Because I have to work here. I need this job. Mm-hmm. I need this on my CV. It's going to help me. And if I go back and report again, now this is happening since I reported the racism, then I'm going to be out of a job. So, I mean, I'm to each his own. But I just feel that we're in the millennium and the things need to be addressed. And, you know, there's a way of dealing with, with things. You just have to figure it out. But that's just my take on that. Okay, so well, I'm going to move on with you. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I do think that, you know, one of the ways that, you know, I, I appreciate that this conversation has really cons- consistently focused on how do we support our sisters, how do we be there for our sisters. And I, I do mm-hmm. think right, that we have to, you know, sometimes the, the answer to fight is fight, and sometimes the answer is to to, to, you know, protect yourself. Yeah. And I think we have to be, you know, we have one way to support our in that is to, to, to provide comfort and, and a place, hopefully, of comfort and peace for them wherever mm-hmm. they are in the decision that they have to make for themselves because these environments are toxic. They can become even more toxic, if, you know. Oh, yeah. So, I, I think well, I know. We have, so helping to identify toxicity and and then how to address it if it if you if the person chooses to, is a way that we can support each other. But right. recognizing that not everybody is either willing or in the position, even if they are willing, to they can't address it. I think that's, yeah. that's important. Yeah, it is. And it's important to just to know whatever decision that someone makes, you know, support them in it. Because not everybody can say, ah, oh, see you later, I'm out of here. So <laughs> and not everybody can. Yeah, because we all know, look, look what I've been here, done and have T-shirts to show you. So, like I said to her, I'm supporting you 100%. Whatever the decision is that you make, I'll support you. If you need a sounding board, at the end of the day, call me up. Give me, make sure I have plenty of cigarettes first, and we can stay on the phone for hours 
or, you know, <laughs> or, or we can meet somewhere. Just let it be somewhere that I can smoke because, you know, I'm going to need one. And just talk about it because, yeah, I know she laughs at me when I say it. She's like, you need to stop. But it's funny because when she when she called me, when she, we were going, I said, oh, my goodness, you need to listen to my show tomorrow night. We're going to be talking about this. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because she felt as if she is a black woman. She could not be or think that black self in her position. And her thing was, well, you walked away. And I'm like, yeah, but I made plans before I walked away. I didn't just get up one day and say, I'm done. You know, you have to plan. But I respect her decision. I respect the fact that she's in a position where most of us, we're 99.5% of the time, we're not in a position we can just say, that's it, I'm done. Because it's your career, it's your livelihood, your reputation, you put so much into it. So I just think it's important for us as black women, like or everybody here said, to support each other regardless. You don't have to agree with a decision that someone is making, but understand um, that we do need that support, that sister unit, that unity there. So ladies, I'm going to skip my little scenario that I gave you about Sheila and Maya. Yes. Because I think okay. I think we basically almost covered that in a sense and move on because we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. So let me just mm-hmm. skip on um, and make this our last one. Years ago, I'd always said, this is my quote, define yourself for yourself authentically and unapologetically last year. But we've already covered the authentic. We've already called the unapologetic. So let me just ask you this thing, and I'll start with Dr. Wally on scene first. Why is it important for black girls and women to define themselves for themselves? Then Dr. Butler and then Dr. Grange. Um, as I think we've mentioned before, I think it's because it's the way we survive and thrive. Well, do more than survive. It's the way that we thrive in a world that is intent on, I'm a bit of hyperbole, but intent on killing us, right? They don't want us to be good. They don't want us to be great. And so I mm-hmm. think that, you know, it is important for us to find who we are and, and embrace who we are so that we can be who we are and not have to be kind of pulled and pushed and moved, you know, around at the whim of others. And so to me, it's about rooting ourselves and 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 just being being safe and secure if in mm-hmm. at least one thing, and that is who we are. If we can't be safe and secure in anything else, right? So that's, I mean, that's my response. okay. I think who is going sure. to Dr. Green, Dr. Butler, Dr. Butler Burns. Um, so I okay. think that it's important that we. Um, share. I think it's important that we thrive and also tell our own narratives and construct our own narratives. I think that's particularly important. And my thing is, they like our culture a lot. What's wrong with us liking our own culture? So I think that we can embrace Black is Beautiful. I mean, because we are that. They love it. We can love it too. Exactly. One beautiful. Dr. Grange? Um, I, support, I support all of that. I think it's, it's critical. Um, otherwise, our girls will spend a lot of time trying to meet someone else's standard for who they are and miss out on the opportunity to use their gifts to benefit themselves and family, their families and their communities. I agree. Great. Ladies, um, doctors, I'd like to thank you all for your participation. And, um, to our listeners, 
have, before I even go any further, are there, are there any specific research projects or events that you have coming up you'd like to share with our audience, um, any of you, Dr. Um, Salva Barnes? Yeah, so I am um, continuing my work with black girls by um, exploring black girls' experiences who are part of a desegregation program here um, and looking at how you know, being bust and being in this space that isn't yours, their experiences. Um, and then just continuing the work that I do around my um, culturally responsive programming with girls of color and, um, and, and math achievement. Wow, excellent. Uh, Dr. Gray? Um, I'm continuing to work at, in academia, but I think an important resource to share outside of the work that I'm doing for community-based program and program evaluation in particular, though, is a resource called Therapy for Black Girls, where there's a directory, there's a therapist directory that is national that includes black female therapists. And so I would love for um, people listening to disseminate that resource because a lot of times people suggest they cannot find a therapist of color, particularly a, a woman. And in Atlanta, it's different, right? And in large metropolitan areas, it's it may not be an issue, but in smaller communities, the resources are less. So having a centralized um, mechanism for linking people to resources that they may be able to benefit from is important. So this particular resource can be found at therapyforblackgirls.com. It's not my website, um, but Dr. Hardin has compiled this resource list, and I think it can be beneficial to people if they have struggled around issues of racial identity are in communities that aren't supportive or for whatever reason aren't in a family where racial socialization has been prioritized in a way that's been optimal. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Excellent. Dr. Wong, do you have anything you'd like to add to share your research? Or I am. Events? I'm continuing my work with um, looking for uh, notions around, well, looking at violence in college, black college students particularly women, and really uh, trying to change the lens when we look at that and looking at the resilience and the ideas that black women hold that may actually um, buffer them in, in some ways or against becoming in violent relationships or persisting in violent relationships. I also wanted to mention, I generally look at, again, violence against women, but both sexual and domestic violence. And I do want to point out uh, a resource called the Black Women's Blueprint, which is a group out of, I think they're out of New York, really addressing uh, black women's being civil rights and human rights uh, among, among a lot of topics. So I encourage our listeners to check out their webpage because they do have a lot of resources as well as activities for people to be engaged in um, social justice issues that affect black women in particular. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And what I am doing also with NG, with the National Girls and Women's Color Council, I'm putting together like a database of scholars and the particular research areas that you focus in on, and we'll be adding that to our website. So I'll be sending you all emails about the information to add your projects and your research focus. Um, it's like in a little form, and then it'll be added to our website as a resource for anyone who's looking for research in particular areas, they'll be able to reach out and contact you. So we'll do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's important 
We need to have that. So after the show tonight, you'll receive the archive from me. You'll receive the form to put your names in our, in our resource database with the links. And, you, of course, you would have final approval before it's published. It's important that we do that. I would like to thank each one of you, Dr. Butler Barnes, Dr. Grange, Dr. Wally D. Thank you all so much for coming on, sharing your expertise, the knowledge, thank enlightenment. It, it was so needed and so necessary. And I will tell you all, I am definitely looking forward to inviting you back as guests again. Um, I think this conversation was just awesome. It was perfect. Thank you for um, inviting me. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay, so if you can hold the line, um, doctors, to our listeners, I'm going to leave these announcements with you before I forget. As a reminder, the call for submissions for the National Girls and Women of Color Council Anthology, Our Voices, Our Stories, is still open. It will close on May 31st, 2018. And again, we're looking for young women to write either essays, short stories, poems. Um, you can write a commentary. It's important that you, your voices are heard. So remember, if you have any questions, feel free to contact me through NGWCC. Or if you go to our website, NGWCC.org, and click on the link for the anthology, you'll see all the, everything there. So please submit. We are keeping the call for submissions open in an attempt to obtain more submissions from our young women. So please do not hesitate to do that. Um, do not forget next week to join us. For our show on the 27th, is going to be focusing on young, gifted, and black. And I'll guess the first episodes will be discussing young girls and issues that they're dealing with in the millennium, being young, gifted, and black little girls in Vanessa. So before I leave, listeners, I'd like to share this poem with you. This is for my dear friend, Dr. K. The poem is titled, How Dare You? Dear black woman, who do you think you are? How dare you, black woman, think so highly of yourself? How dare you be articulate? How dare you possess the intellectual ability to outthink me? How dare you wear your hair? Well, not like I think you should. How dare you, black woman, speak your truth unapologetically? How dare you like the finer things in life? How dare you call me on my... How dare you be unapologetically authentic? How dare your presence overwhelm me? How dare you, black woman, use your voice to be heard? How dare you challenge me? How dare you be comfortable in your own skin? How dare you be a phenomenal woman? How dare you roll up like you were in charge, especially when you are? How dare you, black woman, be true to yourself. How dare you advance, celebrate, embrace, and empower black girls and women? How dare you fail to fit my negative stereotypes of black women and then have the audacity again to keep defying these negative stereotypes? How dare you buy a house next door to me? How dare you shut down my racist views? How dare you not act like an angry black woman especially when I try to provoke you. How dare you, black woman, call me out for treating you disparately? How dare you focus on the psychological, emotional, physical, and social well-being growth of black girls and black women? 
How dare you have healthy self-esteem? How dare you love yourself unconditionally? How dare you define yourself for yourself in your pursuit of happiness? How dare you, black woman, be your sister's keepers? How dare you correct me when I call you girl? How dare you? Signed, untruly yours, a perplexed white woman. So here's the black woman's response. Dear perplexed white woman, who do I think I am? I am what you so obviously fear most, an authentic, unapologetic, proud, woke, intellectual black woman in the pursuit of happiness. I am the change needed in this world. I am your conscience. I am the key that unlocks the psychic prison of your mind. I am here to leave the world better than I found it. I am here to stay. How dare I? I dare because I am an authentically and unapologetically a black woman who has defined herself for herself in a society that said I could not be me as beautiful as I am black. I dare because my authenticity overwhelms you and takes you out of your comfort zone. And that is a good thing. I did not allow you to put me in a box because I showed you that one size does not fit all. To your dismay, I am not invisible. My voice is finally being heard and the platform for us by us. My existence is your worst nightmare in living color. An authentic and unapologetic black woman who, like Maya wrote, continues to rise because I am black and I am beautiful. Signed, an authentic and unapologetic black woman. Good night, listeners. Good night. Thank you for joining us for Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culpa. You may contact us at 866-829-0163. We're looking forward to you tuning in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week, remember to define yourself for yourself. Dare to be different and dream in color. This is Dr. Culpith signing off for Visibility. Good night. Thank you for joining us for Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culpith. Thank you for joining us for Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culpith. You may contact us at 866-829-0163. We're looking forward to you tuning in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week, remember to define yourself for yourself. Dare to be different and dream in color. This is Dr. Culpith signing off for Visibility. Good night.